The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, you're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio and this is the Cambridge Film Show. Your fortnightly one-stop shop for shop talk on films big and small across the city in South Cambridgeshire. Um, it's quite warm outside, so grab something cool and settle in the shade as we go through what may or may not be worth catching this week in cinemas and on streaming. I'm Lorcan O'Neill and with me today are my expert team of reviewers in no particular order. Vicky Eyre. Hello. Ashley Whitaker. Hello. Matthew Taylor. Hi. Luke Irwin. Good afternoon. And Stuart Pask. Hello. Uh, we have some heavy-hitting franchises in store for you today, as well as some hopefully indie darlings. Harrison Ford dons the fedora in what is, he is adamant is his final outing as the adventuring archaeologist Indiana Jones, chasing the enigmatic dial of destiny this time. We travel to a far-off land and see how opposites attract in Disney Pixar's Elemental. Succession, Sarah Snook stars as a doctor who must face a mysterious threat to her family in Run, Rabbit, Run. The Lambert family just can't catch a break as supernatural shenanigans drag them back into the Insidious Saga. Pierce Brosnan and Ellen Barkin star as a pair of career crim- criminals who must be wooed by their daughter's new suitor in The Outlaws. And finally, we'll peek behind the curtain at the friendship between George Michael and Andrew Ridgely as they ascend to pop icons as Wham! So without further ado, let's see if Indy can still whip those Nazis. Well, in that case, what are we drinking? Same for the goddaughter. Dad told me you found something. On a train during the war. A dial that could change the course of history. Why are you chasing the thing that drove your father crazy? Don't move. We need to get out of here. Stop! Sorry. Helena! Dr. Jones, get him. Hitler made mistakes, and with this, I will correct them all. You stole it. Then you stole it. And then I stole it. It's called capitalism. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny charts the first outing of the action hero without the helming of influence, uh, helming influence of Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, uh, this time having the veteran hard, gritty director James Mangold uh, stepping behind the camera as Indy must team up with his goddaughter Helena, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, to put a stop to the villainous Dr. Voller and his gang of Nazi henchmen as they seek out a power to change the world as we know it. Ashley, um, in one week Harrison Ford turns 81. Uh, how does he fare coming back to the action series? I, one of my favourite things about it, actually, is how they treated an older character. They're not trying to do the old Tom Cruise, let's strap him to a plane and show that 50 and 60-year-olds can do it. The action suited him. He's doing a lot of tactical driving, which he's good at, and he can do sitting down, some, some ginger diving. Um, I thought he was great, and they had enough kind of younger, faster people around him doing some other stuff. So I think it's yeah. He's still an action hero. He's an eighty-year-old one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stu, it's it's quite an uphill battle um, whenever anyone has to take the reins and end a series that was completely manned by Steven Spielberg. How does is Mangold pushing above his weight a little bit? I think it was always going to be a challenge for anyone anyone to take on the indie films after the the original the original three. Um, we don't really talk about Kingdom of the Lost Skull. That was, was sorry. 
Crystal, crystal skull. skull. Crystal skull. skull. <laughs> sorry, crystal 15 skull. Fifteen years ago. I, I paused. I was like, "What am I talking about?" Um, no, sorry. Uh, yes, crystal skull. We don't talk about that. That was just bad. But I think they've done a really good job on this one. Uh, a nice way to draw the uh, franchise to its uh, alleged close. Um, and I, I, I think it's so really sort of holds up to some of the older titles in terms of the action, uh, the return to the Nazis being the villain. Um, and I think it's sort of a bit more true, gritty indie that we... An underdog indie, not like supreme indie like in, in, the, in the last film. So I, 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 was, I was quite pleased with it. <laughs> Matt, um, I think you're a bit more lukewarm in the film. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I really didn't think I was going to be in the minority for really kind of hating this. My issues started right at the beginning. There's a half-hour prologue where he's been CG de-aged and you see it and you're like, oh wow, he's young and then he starts moving around and you're like, mm, this is not quite right and it's a bit distracting and then it just goes on for half an hour and you don't see anything that you need to see for the rest of the film because anything important that happens in the prologue they reference again as if you hadn't just seen it happen and I was just thinking, if this film had been made 10 or 15 years ago when you couldn't CG de someone they would have had to do that prologue with a different actor and then they wouldn't have bothered because it's pointless so the prologue's only there to show off the technology which is distracting and just put me in a bad mood and then when the film starts properly I was already in a bad mood and then there's two hours more of it so cut the first half hour and I think I would have been a bit kinder with it well yeah it is two hours 40 odd minutes Luke how did you find it? Um, I was I was pretty warm on it I say. Um, I think there's def- it's definitely a film not without its flaws. Um, I think, for instance, that, that opening sequence very much demonstrates that this film's sort of pulling on two poles, of sort of want- wanting to be the classic Indiana Jones and then being hamstrung by having an 80-year-old man at the centre of it. I think they do... I wasn't... I think one of the things that I found pleasant about this film and one thing that I was worried about was how little time I spent thinking or feeling sorry for Harrison Ford. So you, you saw him in films like Star Wars and Blade Runner uh, 2049, where he's sort of traipsing around, he's sort of just there being Harrison Ford, like it's just his face and he's just wandering around going, remember me from these other films? I think it's nice to see him back back in the centre of the action here. Um, and they, they work around his limits as as an older man and there are some really impressive set pieces so not only the driving but there's a wonderful sequences in the trailer of the um moon parade um and you get this brilliant sequence where he's running down the street on a horseback that's the kind of visual panache that um reminded me of james cameron's true light which also mm. features very similar horsebacks on city streets um and certainly James Mangold is no Steven Spielberg, but we have to remember that Steven Spielberg directed Crystal Skull. <laughs> um, and he hates the second film. He thinks it's... Mm. And he, it, yeah, Spielberg himself hates my favourite indie film. He thinks he did a terrible job. Yeah. Um, I think, well, for me, I, I was, I was, I'm, I'm more in Matt's camp. I think something that distracted me throughout the film is that this is the first Indiana Jones film that doesn't have like a supernatural thing overlooking the film. Either it's Old Testament God or like a voodoo cult or whatever. There's always something higher than indie watching over this like a, like a foreboding. With was this film too far 
away from the fantasy kind of aspect of the franchise. I, I think that the supernatural elements were very strong. I mean, they're trying to get this dial of destiny, which is a sort of time travel device. And then without wanting to go into spoiler territory, I felt what they actually did with it was just too ridiculous for me. I mean, I know that the other films have all ended with a, a supernatural element, but for this, it was just too much for me. Or a bit all over the place. I, I, I kind of felt the whole tone of this film was kind of all over the place. I didn't think the central three of Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and uh, the kid whose name I've forgotten, I didn't think they were very good together. I mean, Harrison Ford's just kind of being grumpy old man. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I quite like her in Fleabag, and she was just doing Fleabag, but it, she's not an action hero, so that meant the action wasn't great. And, and they didn't seem like they were on the same page. I mean, my favourite scene in the film is when... Phoebe Waller-Bridge is kind of giving a history lesson as a way to distract from lighting some dynamite. And then they do a bit of a heroic escape, and then she's all happy, and Harrison Ford's just, my friend just died! I was like, okay, so no one's allowed to have any fun here. Yeah, I, I struggled with it. Um, what about the villains? Because obviously there's, the, the villains kind of make up uh, part of the, the iconography of, of the franchise as well. And But here we have, like in Raiders, you have like the world's slimiest creep, uh, and... In this film, you've got the inimitably attractive Mads Mikkelsen and his adorable man friend Boyd Holbrook racing around. Um, they seem sympathetic to the plight of minorities, uh, and they—it's—it's it's just a far cry. I know this, recently, Seanette Renee Wilson said that she requested some of the Nazi dialogue cut because she felt it was problematic and made, made her feel uncomfortable. Is this a little? Is this Disney sanitizing things a bit too much? Um, I, th I think it's, you know, it's always going to be just very, very Nazi is bad, Indiana Jones good. I think that's that's the sort of extent of it. They don't go too much into the history and some of the awful things the Nazis did in any of the films, I don't think. But um, suffice it to say, I think I think um, Mickelson does a great job of portraying his villain. He, he really sort of takes on the role and sort of really disappears into it. And he, you can tell he's definitely the bad guy um, for sort of the minute he sort of appears on the screen. And also he looks a lot like the, the creepy guy from, uh, is it Raiders, um, who has the, the burn mark on his hand. So there's a lot of, there's a parallel there which I really enjoyed. I think another thing to say about the villains is the stakes are much lower here in terms of the villains. Like in, in Raiders, he's fighting up against the entire Nazi regime. Here, he's sort of just one guy and Boyd Holbrook. And we don't even know the, what their plan is. Yeah, and that's... that. You could you could see that as a flaw of the film because it, it seems kind of ridiculous that you sort of... You, it's not really an underdog story. It's sort of a scientist and a man with a gun against Indiana Jones. You think, well, you know, what, what's, the, what's the battle here? But I kind of like that they, they switch up. I mean, it falls into a couple of these genre conventions that you get in all these kind of adventure films where, you know, Indiana Jones is sort of one step ahead because he's used his, you know, archaeology skills and then the bad guys just sort of follow them along. It, that, that kind of feels a bit lazy, a bit of a lazy way to do it. But I think the performances from Maz Mickelson and Boyd Holbrook, they're charismatic enough that um, I think that works. 
Yes. Yeah, and I enjoyed as well how they, they do sort of blend in some historical set pieces into the narrative of the film. And I think it's really clever how they sort of work those sorts of things into movies. And particularly for me, um, the fact they sort of play on the fact that actually after World War Two, a lot of German scientists did defect to the United States for their rocket program and went on to form the basis of the Apollo missions and, and, and all, the, all the moon missions and stuff. So I thought that was really sort of interesting way how, you know, they sort of mirrored that in the film. But they weren't still secretly Nazis. No, no, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely weren't. <laughs> how do the, the side characters shape up? Because we've got Sala back from the original films. Uh, Antonio Banderas shows up as a, uh, a <laughs> just a, a Tom of Finland-esque fisherman. My heart melted when I saw John Rhys-Davis wander back in in his garb in the desert. I love that character. And you were just mentioning before, like, where is... Data. We definitely should have brought Data back. That was, oh, I love that kid. But I think they were trying to a nod right at the end with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. There's a lot of hat work. It was kind of an extended metaphor throughout because I think the director's a fan and I thought it was really cute. And right at the end when there's people walking away down the street, Phoebe Waller-Bridge puts Data's cap on. It looks exactly like the hat the kid wore and I thought that was adorable. I don't remember much about her sidekick, the little kid. He was cute enough. Nowhere near um, Kikwe Huan's level. <laughs> Phoebe Waller-Bridge, I do like her as well, but very, very distracting because it's Fleabag. Mm. Well, I was going to say, because I, 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 I wasn't a fan of Phoebe Waller-Bridge in this one. I think, I think the, the character as written was fine. I just think her persona just was a bad fit. <laughs> but do we think, because this was released in the UK a few days before kind of a lot of other territories. It was released here before the US and stuff. Do you think that was them trying to get the UK to give some positive reviews for Phoebe Waller-Bridge because Kathleen Candy has said she wants this character to be her own kind of spin-off character franchise. I don't I don't I don't think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is perhaps a big enough name <laughs> for her to be drawing box office uh, audiences. I think, you know, Indiana Jones is it's the guy here. I don't think anyone's going to see this film because Phoebe Waller-Bridge is in it and they've never heard of Indiana Jones before. Um yeah, I, I agree with you. I didn't particularly care for her in this role. Like, I didn't even like Fleabag, so it's a bad, it's a bad <laughs> start. She's quite an odd fit for it, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's kind of a, a smugness mm. to her performance that felt like it was undermining. Very unlikable. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like they've cast Phoebe Waller-Bridge to play Phoebe Waller-Bridge based <laughs> on all of her previous performances. And um, and she's, this isn't her first blockbuster, She's but she's done sort of uh, voice acting and sort of motion capture work for Star Wars. So it's not like it's totally unfamiliar territory for her. But yeah, I just don't see where the sort of the box office appeal for her is. Mm. So overall, is this one the catch in the cinemas or wait until Disney Plus? Cinema, cinema, cinema. It's yeah. it's event cinema. It's yeah. and definitely directed by a fan, and it is my favourite franchise of all time, Bar Scream. <laughs> well, if you do watch it in the cinema, though, the CGI in the opening will be much more distracting. <laughs> I, I saw it in IMAX, and then you can really tell that something's not quite right. But the de-aging technology is getting better. <laughs> and I also, I also think that you just have to come to it, expect that. I think apart from anything, it's, you know, we talk about the CGI in this, but what about you know these superhero films that are just chock full of CGI. I'd rather, I'd rather have CGI of a kind of wonky... I don't think any, no one's defending the CGI superhero <laughs> films here. I think. <laughs> um, well, catch up, well, there's a slew of action films coming out in the next few weeks, so catch Indiana Jones on the big screen while you can. Uh, it's a certificate 12A, and it's screening at all three Cambridge cinemas. Um, sticking with Disney, uh, we're going to visit Element City. 
with the residents of Element City. Air usually has their head in the clouds. Oh, my new jacket! Earth can be a little seedy. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing weird going on here. Uh, just a little pruning. Water is always getting into something. Fire, as ordered, we run a little hot. Pixar Animation present their new fantastical story of love in a world populated by characters made up of earth, wind, fire, and water. The film follows Ember and Wade, and it's literally fire meets water as they journey through the city and discover they actually might have some things in common. Luke, um, a Pixar release when I was growing up was a literal event. There would be months of hype and rumor and speculation I've heard precisely nothing about this film. Can you tell me any more? Should I have heard about this? Uh, yeah, I remember when this film was sort of announced about a year ago, and there was sort of wild um, scoffing at the fact that this feels like such a parody of a Pixar film. Mm. It's like, oh, here's here's an oddball couple who go on a crazy adventure, and they learn a thing or two along the way. And I think watching the... You know, you could... You could know exactly what's going to happen in this film right from the very word go. And um, is this the second Pixar film that's come out in cinemas since the pandemic? Was Lightyear the first one? It was Strange World as well. That wasn't very good. So they're they're really faltered, and I wonder whether they sort of lost a bit of confidence in their marketing here because it did just pop up out of nowhere. And... I mean, it's so stupid, this film. <laughs> I'll sort of hold back my reservations a bit, um, but it's so stupid. Oh, well, Matt, after after stuff like Cars and Zootopia, uh, the concept of the world but filled with X, is that, does that still feel fresh here with the element aspect? I, I actually did quite like this, and, and the audience I saw it with yesterday seemed to agree because it actually got a round of applause at the end. <laughs> Not from me, from other people. But, yeah, I mean, I thought, I thought Element City was cool. It You could say, yeah, it's just the same old thing, but I, I don't think we've had a sort of Pixar romance. I thought this was going to be a more kind of investigation film like Zootopia, but it's actually the whole thing they're investigating kind of gets forgotten about, and it is just a rom-com, really, which I think is a bit different to what Pixar usually do. And I think you could spend all day just nitpicking things about how this world actually works like why (laughs) what relationship does the water have to the actual water people or why would a fire shop even have water pipes or you know how do they have children or anything i don't think there's much to be gained from doing that you just have to accept that the world doesn't make sense and you're going to watch a bit of a rom-com and on that basis i think it succeeds I, sorry, I don't buy that at all. I don't. I don't. I don't buy. You have you to can, find out how they reproduce think, in Element well, City. Like I'm not there looking for you know like a thousand pages of lore on the history of Element City and how how they managed to build these huge skyscrapers. But I think what makes the good Pixar films great is that they conjure a world that feels so believable. The world building is core to their concepts when you go back to the very beginning of films like Toy Story, there's a real concise, clear uh, conceit that they build off. I just don't quite understand what the value of going, 
oh, imagine if there was a world where there are anthropomorphic elements and there's fire people who have a shop who sell, like, fire snacks <laughs> and then there's, like, water people just, you know, rolling around going through pipes. And, I mean, you threw out this idea that like, there's a core part of the plot is that the city is flooding, but there are also people made of water. So what's the water made of? And I, I couldn't stop thinking about that watching the film. And I know... It, this is why adults don't watch kids' films. Yeah, You're I, overthinking I, I, know, I know this is a children's film, and maybe children aren't thinking about this to this extent, but I think children are smarter than we give them credit for. And you look at the good Pixar films, they get the fundamentals right, and I think kids pick up on that. They might not pick up on intricate um, subtext. Like one, one of the strengths of this film is they do a really good job using the visual metaphor to look at tolerance and um, sort of this melting pot city. And there are, there are sort of quite clever... Um, callbacks to sort of things that sort of remind you of The Godfather Part 2 sort of immigrants coming into the city and sort of getting their paperwork and the, the guys not being able to pronounce their name so it's like oh I'll just call you Bernie you know, it's Bernie because he's made of fire <laughs> it did seem odd that everyone had a pun name you'd yeah. think they'd get tired of that after yeah, a while yeah. like how many wind people called Gale can there be <laughs> But I, I think all of that is the premise. Like, all of the stuff you've complained about, you could have complained about just from seeing the poster. I think if you're going to go in, you have to accept that they're elements and they live in Element City. And I think if you do accept that and don't let yourself get annoyed by it, there is, like, a fun rom-com here. And, and I think people will respond to it, and people did respond to it positively in the screening I saw. And I, I, I was engaged. I, I liked uh, the central pairing. Uh, I found the guy a bit annoying because he's constantly crying. <laughs> but I liked it. It won me over. And and the end, you know, I think that had quite a few people on the brink of tears. Okay, well, mix, mixed reviews. Maybe if you're young and don't think about it too much, you'll have, you'll have a, a nice time. Um, Elemental is a certificate PG and it's screening at The View and The Light Cinemas. Uh, now we're going to take a bit of a dark turn uh, in Australia. Can people come back... Come back from where? From where they go when they die. I had a sister. Her name was Alice. What was she like? She liked animals. She'd find wild rabbits and bring them home. I love you! She went missing when she was only seven. I'm seven. Sarah Snook stars as a single mother, Sarah, in Run, Rabbit, Run, um, where she plays a fertility doctor whose young daughter starts acting very strangely after the passing of Sarah's father. Um, with a mother suffering from dementia and her daughter assuming a new identity, paranoia blurs reality for Sarah, and a dark past comes to light. Vicky. Yes. Um, this is a very much an atmospheric horror. Its atmosphere is a big part of it. Were you engaged by it? Um, yeah, actually, Sarah Snook kind of won me over. Um, I was actually kind of deeply not wanting to watch this film mainly because I'm just not a big fan of The Babadook and as soon as this started I was like here's another depressing life that I like the life is more depressing than the horror present in the film I thought that was what we were about to journey through for an hour and 40 minutes but genuinely Sarah Suk just carried this on her back to the point that I finished it and actually had an okay time 
And it's mainly because we were I was so annoyed at the little girl throughout it, um, who's played by Lily Terror. Uh, by um, all of the um, sarcastic glances I was giving her, Sarah Snook was also giving her in the film. Um, it was kind of this daughter-mother um, relationship where she's literally looking at her child like, you are turning into a demon. like, And she's very aware that it's not her little girl anymore. She's like, I don't know why you're doing this either. And she's not giving her much sympathy for it. And uh, she's like, it's just unrelenting when it gets to the point where... Uh, you're then in the Australian outback and then things start going crazy and there's not a lot of wrap-up that I maybe lost it with this film. But I kind of enjoyed it. Um, I give it more credit than I did The Babadook and I don't regret the watch. So that's my <laughs> review for this. Well, yeah, kind of mentioning the, the, the Babadook and stuff like Hereditary as well, these uh, minimalist horror is quite popular. Um, mm. is, is this perhaps a mumblecore situation, though, where someone makes some cheap... Uh, cheap. Uh, some, some some people make a splash of some cheap indie comedies, and then everyone starts to replicate it. The market mm. gets oversaturated because they're cheap and easy to make. Is this this situation? It, it could have been. I mean, it, it was very similar to the Babadook. I didn't think anywhere near as good, but definitely the idea of is is the horror real or is the mum just mentally ill was you know the theme for me all the way through. And I don't think there's you can sort of discuss this with people you've watched it with and come up with your own conclusions which I like there's no kind of definitive answer to it all but, but yeah I would agree with Vicky I thought it was it was alright I was actually kind of identifying with the frustration of uh, Sarah Snook as the mum trying to deal with this little girl because you know children can be little demons sometimes <laughs> even when they're not being possessed by spirits from beyond the, the soundtrack was a bit oppressive for me. There's a lot of very kind of droning sort of horn sounds which kind of in, induce dread in you when maybe the film isn't really earning it. But I don't think it was terrible. I don't really understand why this is rated so low on IMDb. I thought it was absolutely fine with some good ideas and lots of stuff to discuss with people afterwards. Or Ash, was there was there anything original in the characters setting here? Uh, I think well, there's a big reveal towards the end, and I actually thought that was pretty cool. But too little, too late. I think they could have reworked it and told you that a lot, lot earlier. And a lot of Sarah Snook did do an incredible job, and she's purposefully unlikable in certain ways and very complex. And you would have understood that character a lot more had we been let in on the twist earlier so it, it was a brilliant idea but I think just all out of order not quite presented in the right way yeah a bit, a bit TV show-ish I thought for me um, Luke what's, uh, what was your takeaway from this was um, it scary it was atmospheric and that's you know that's become a bit of a we, we sort of use the phrase elevated horror for films that aren't actually scary <laughs> um yeah, I th there are, there's plenty to like about this film. So I I was really looking forward to this film because of Sarah Snook. Um, she's just come off of Succession and getting rave reviews for that. And I was a bit disheartened to see that, you know, the film that she was doing after that was a horror film, which you, you kind of feel like, is this is this where you're going to get your, you know, where you're really going to be able to stand out as an actor? But she does a really good job carrying this film. I think the flaw, and perhaps the reason that it's getting the negative reviews that it is, is the screenplay is really not doing the film justice. There's a there's a real problem at the heart of the film, which is that everyone involved 
you know, all the characters know the big secret, but the audience doesn't. So there's a lot of, you know, people giving sideways glances and sort of going, do, do you know what I know? And the audience is sitting there thinking, we don't know anything. <laughs> and it gets quite repetitive at times, sort of trying to build this tension and trying to build this mystery. But because there's no actual plot development within that, it becomes a little bit tiresome. And one big plot development, or one big secret, never even got revealed, which is why has she gone no contact, or why is she, Sarah Snook, refusing to talk to her own mother? I kept thinking, oh, this has got to be revealed at some point, and then the film was over, and I thought, why were they not speaking to each other again? I think, I think it was um, definitely foreshadowed that, um, obviously, with the mother's dementia, she was saying things such as, I should never let you alone with her, you're evil, mm. and I'm guessing just after the disappearance of the sister, um, which is what this whole film is basically based upon, is that... Um, I guess the mother just resented her own daughter and knew something must have happened and the mm. dad probably defended her, which is why after the dad's death um, at the start of the film, uh, it, it, this is why she's starting to unravel because she has no one there anymore and she's just left with her own thoughts about, you know, the, the plot twist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, some spooky, mildly melodramatic horror there on Netflix um, is uh, Run, Rabbit, Run is a certificate 15 Cambridge 105 Radio. Jesus Green Lido is 100 years old. For a century, swimmers have ploughed up and down its 100-yard pool. It's being able to swim in a non-chlorinated pool, outside, with the trees, in the sunshine. This Sunday, I'll be looking at the history of the Lido, the people who love it, and why we should all take the plunge. You're 100% present for that moment you're in the water, and that's such an incredible feeling. So join me, Lee Chambers, this Sunday at midday to celebrate one of the longest, coldest and most beautiful Lidos in the country in The People's Pool, a centenary celebration of Jesus Green Lido. It's forecast to be another hot summer. Watering the lawn, cleaning the car, filling up paddling pools. It all adds up to a massive strain on our local water resources. But did you know, a hose uses up to 1,000 litres an hour. That's as much as an average adult uses in a week. And every single litre is high-quality drinking water, taken from the same groundwater sources that supply Cambridge's chalk streams, including the cam. If we all switch our hose for a watering can this summer, we'll keep millions of litres in local streams. Can for the cam. And not only will you save water, but you'll help protect habitats and wildlife for generations to come. And while you're doing your bit, here at Cambridge Water, we'll be doing ours, finding and fixing leaks as quickly as possible. You can find out more about saving water and why it's important at cambridge-water.co.uk. Just look for Can for the Cam on our homepage. Can for the Cam. Ditch the hose this summer. The Ultimate Challenge is back. The 17th Cambridge Dragon Boat Festival in aid of Attenbrook's Charitable Trust takes place on Saturday the 9th of September. Gather your colleagues, hit the water and hear the cheers of the crowd as you paddle your way to victory. No experience necessary. There's even a range of bankside entertainment, food stalls and fun activities to guarantee a fabulous day out for all the family. For more information and to register your team, visit dragonboatevents.co.uk The 2023 Cambridge Dragon Boat Festival organised by New Wave Events and supported by Cambridge 105 Radio. 
You're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio, and this is the Cambridge Film Show. Uh, we're just about halfway through our fortnightly review of new releases. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and here again with me are Matt, Vicky, Stu, and Ashley. Uh, now it's time for an off-season fright. Are you ready? We're ready to forget the further, once and for all. My brain just been foggy the past few years. All I ever wanted was to be a good dad. Dalton. Mom. Renee. Well, some spooky shenanigans going on there. Insidious the Red Door is the fifth installment in the series, bringing back the original Lambert family and cast to face the repercussions of their early adventures in the further, a supernatural plane that exists in conjunction with our own where evil lies in wait. Vicky, you've seen this one. Um, I have. I'm fairly out of the loop with these films now. I think the last one I saw had something to do with a girl in an apartment and there's monsters in the walls or something like that. That was number three. Is this... Is this a return to form? Did the series ever lose it at any point? Uh, this, uh, the series never really lost it, but the last 10 years of Insidious films, which was the last two films, number three and four, are just prequels. Uh, Insidious and Insidious 2, um, this is the main theme we're going back to. This is uh, Patrick Wilson, who plays Josh Lambert. We're back with the Lambert family. We're back with Dalton, who was the original um, child that was, you know, demented in the first film. And... Uh, I'm so happy to be back and I'm so happy that this is Patrick Wilson's uh, directorial debut because I have not been that genuinely terrified in a, like, in a screen in so long. There was, I was there last night and there was, there was people yelling, there were people walked out, there was popcorn flying. Like, Insidious is, it's like a jump scare franchise, but the thing that makes it different is that the jump scares, the thing that is scaring you is genuinely horrifying. Like the demons that are making these scares, I still like on the walk home was like, I need to get home just a little bit faster. Oh, that did I leave the kitchen door open or what's happening? That is something I still think about when I leave these films. And it's probably one of the franchises that as well as the Conjuring series, like I have grown up with, I saw these all in the cinema since I was, it's probably one of my first 15 rated films. And this has, this franchise has generated now nostalgia and to the point where I just, I'm actually glad to be back with these characters, that these are back on my screen. And it is for a finale and I think it's generally paid off. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think for me, the creativity of the the world, especially the further, is something that makes this film stand out where they've really put the effort into the visuals and make it not run, rabbit, run. Mm. Um, pa- uh, Patrick Wilson, who plays the dad in the series, he's from Aquaman, he's from a bunch of stuff. He This is his first directing role. He decided mm. to, I guess, it feels a personal attachment. How did he do uh, in his first feature? He did well. Um, he The thing that differentiates these films from the first two is that... Uh, Patrick Wilson, who plays the father, um, is, str- is now estranged from his family. And uh, he, I think he's done that in a clever way so that he doesn't have too much screen time, but is still like there for monumental moments. Um, what he has done is directed Ty Simpkins, who plays his son in the film, Dalton, um, to a degree that he brings back the further with a flash. So the way that the film starts is that you're at the end of the second film and you're being... Led, they're being hypnotized to forget everything about what has happened to them for the past year. 
and then so the audience don't have to really have watched any mm. of the other films because you're with them and you're they're cloudy they don't have the memory and it's he's directed Dalton to start college and suddenly his art teacher tells him to count and suddenly he's counting down and then he completely goes and it's like father and son realizing that their memories aren't just hazy they have been hypnotized and the demons are out to get them and I think he's um, Ty Simpkins. This is it's all the original children from the first fran- like from the first two films. You've got the son Foster as well, and he's had a great year. He's I forgot he was in the Whale earlier this year. Um, he took some time out of acting, and then he's came back. And I just I'm glad that he became such a main character in this film. You really got to see who he was as a grown up. And then do do they do they take full advantage of the kind of fantasy element in the, in this film, or is it more kind of house domestic horror? Oh no, the fantasy's there. Those uh, dark, creepy spaces, uh, the demon, the tiptoe through the tulips. The uh, it's very much uh, all present. Uh, the jump scares, are, you know, very very creative. <laughs> they just they know how to do this kind of horror. Like it's obviously you know produced by Bloomhouse. You've got everyone on board. They just they wanted to go out with a bang and bring the legends with them. You know you've got Elisa who's been throughout the whole franchise and. She, you've got the two de- paranormal detectives and they have like a little little screen time and everyone, you know, gave a little round of applause for them because everyone, I think, just genuinely is in love with what Insidious has done for the horror genre. Well, if you're a fan of the franchise, it sounds like the perfect way to end it. Um, Insidious The Red Door is a certificate 15 and is playing at The View and The Light Cinemas. Now uh, we're getting an insight into an unorthodox family business in The Outlaws. My parents just emailed that they're coming to our wedding. Oh, I get to meet your parents finally. Are you psyched? You're not psyched. Are you psyched at all? Is there any psyched happening? Sitting on top of the world, I'm up. You haven't met this woman parents yet. They've been off the grid the whole time we've been together. What's going down, baby? What's up? Hey! Billy and Lily McDermott. Meet my parents. Pleasure to meet you, Neil. You're very attractive. Oh, thank you. That's not a compliment. For me, it's too much. You deserve something better than that pasty little goober. Dad, just give him a chance. Well, what does a bank manager do? I manage all the security. It's the best. When bank manager Owen, played by Pitch Perfect and Righteous Gemstone star Adam Devine, uh, meets his future in-laws, Pierce Brosnan and Ellen Barkin, things get a little frosty and the subs- a subsequent heist at his bank implicates his new parents and throws the family into a greater criminal underworld. Um, Matt, uh, director Tyler Spindell has the dubious honor of being uh, associated with Adam Sandler's Happy Madison um, inner circle. Um, they make films like The Hot Chick and Jack and Jill, rather notorious. Um, I'll admit I have a soft spot for Hubie Halloween, but that's probably about it. Um, is is this at least some kind of crash, crash mean-spirited guilty pleasure like those other films? I like this. I thought it was actually a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I didn't realize it was Happy Madison going in, and my heart did sink a little bit when I saw that title card come up. But then I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, I think a lot of your enjoyment for this will depend on how much you can tolerate Adam Devine. To me, he's actually kind of a cross between maybe Jack Black and John Cena, and he was really giving 100% the whole time, doing a lot of screeching, a lot of weird silly faces a lot of physical comedy uh he dresses up as shrek at one point and gets thrown around a bank which i actually really enjoyed yeah i think if you go in with low expectations they will be met and cleared 
Pierce Brosnan's having an absolutely brilliant time <laughs> delivering sort of incredibly threatening and gruff lines. Are you calling my wife a liar? <laughs> I mean, if you find that funny, I'm sure you'll enjoy the movie. It, it's great. Yeah. Check it out. <laughs> Vicky, how does this film sit in like the long lineage of Meet the In-Laws movies? I mean... It's good. Um, I I think Adam uh, Devine is just. I I do disagree with what maybe you said. I think he has great main character energy. Um, he he's been in Pitch Perfect. You know, he's been in Modern Family. He's done the rounds, so that he's such a familiar face that you genuinely have this kind of comfort from him and that's the perfect kind of comfort character for when you have the great Piers Brosnan <laughs> Ellen Barkin being your in like in-laws and you know wrecking your life within your potential marriage to Nina Dobrev who <laughs> I'm glad is back on screen in a comedic kind of role I think uh she she's like the I genuinely cared when she got kidnapped in this film. I think she's an act, like it doesn't normally come across as like, oh, you know, the daughter she's getting kidnapped. No one really like cares about it. Why is everyone going through all this trouble? I cared that Nina Dobrev went missing, <laughs> um, and I just think everyone has quite a, a cool role in this. Even Julie Haggerty and Richard Kind, the perfect, you know, the perfect kind of parents for Adam Devine in this film. Everyone was just having a blast, and it was just ridiculous, but not over-the-top ridiculous. It's it's just a good film. Don't forget Michael Rooker as the alcoholic uh, FBI man. Yeah, he didn't add too much, I think, to his role. He <laughs> was just a bit surly and drinking in the backseat. Um, it's a good Netflix watch, and I... I wouldn't, I wouldn't exactly pay to go and see this or maybe ever watch it again, but I had a nice hour and a half. Mm. That is a good point. It's only 90 minutes long. Mm. I had a good hour and a half watching this. It's, yeah, it's rare that a film, a comedy especially, has an appropriate runtime these days. And, and I, it was really an action comedy. Sorry to cut you off there. Mm. As th I thought the action scenes were actually pretty well done. I mean, it probably helps that... As bank robbers, you tend to cover your face, so therefore it's easy to swap out Pierce Brosnan and Ellen Barkin for stunt doubles <laughs> without having to do too much tricky camera work. But beyond the bank robberies, there's also a really cool car chase where they just mm. smash up a graveyard. And That was the first, that was the moment throughout the film. I was like, I can't believe this is happening. That was the first <laughs> most outlandish thing that genuinely went on. <laughs> do, do, is it like, because it's a kind of hitman bank heist film, do you? Do we feel like we're taken into this underworld or is it kind of touch? Is it a very soft touch? No, it's very, very um, neutral. <laughs> like, uh, there's no real danger throughout all mm. of this. It's There's no threat. I had no emotions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not particularly believable. And the idea that they have to go and rob these banks to get the ransoms to pay for Nina Dobrev to be rescued is like, well, clearly your plan didn't involve needing all this money so you could have just skipped the bank heist but I'm glad they didn't and Vicky do you feel like they balanced the like Matt, Matt said the, the action and the comedy was fairly well balanced do you find that or did one kind of overtake the other at all no everyone was very very well played out I think everyone had a little bit of a time to shine especially Julie Haggerty I think she's a <laughs> gem um, her little a little montage. I, I just had a, a good time with them on screen, but also didn't miss them when they were gone either. <laughs> All right. Well, a quality ens ensemble. Yeah, I agree. Richard Kind and Julie Haggerty were definitely the standouts. Julie Haggerty from um, Airplane. Loved, just, loved to see her back and just friends. Um, so maybe have a few drinks, but I don't expect too much. Uh, the Outlaws is a certificate 15 and it's streaming on Netflix. Uh, finally, uh, if you're sick of the 80s, uh, too bad, because we don't give a wham. <laughs>
Let's introduce the band. George, I'm Andrew. We had a number one album, we had a string of hit singles, and we were selling out arenas. How can the country be in love with these two idiots? We met when I was 11 and Andrew was 12. And there was only ever one thing that I wanted to do. You get so, you get so. Be in a band with George. Andrew changed my life in exactly the way someone needed to change my life if I was going to be a pop star. And that was it. Wham! Veteran Netflix documentarian uh, Chris Smith uh, delivers a chronology of George Michael and Andrew Ridgely as they grow up in Watford, form the hit sensation Bam Wham, and face deep personal hurdles as the group achieves international attention and acclaim. Ash, as someone who's very familiar with this story, I imagine, um, was this eye-opening or was it just a kind of greatest hits of the facts? I knew it all already, obviously. <laughs> um, but I do, I love it, and especially... Um, because some people who aren't that au fait with Wham were very excited to find that George Michael was in Wham. Because <laughs> people our age met him at Freedom 90 with the shaved head and the goatee when he was a megastar. And it's really nice to remind everyone where they started. And it just made with such love because um, Andrew Ridgely, his um, best friend and bandmate, was so heavily involved. He's on the press tour with Shirley off of Pepsi and Shirley and they completely co-sign it. And it's just a lovely, warm hug of a run-up before this guy exploded into one of the biggest pop stars we've ever seen. Um, Luke, the, the director, he's done quite a few uh, Netflix documentaries. He seems to churn out one or two a year um, between Netflix and HBO. Was this? Does it feel like more of an assembly line kind of film, or was this film taken in good faith? Yeah, th this is the, the fear when you, when you have a documentary like this, that you're going to track... The rise and fall, or less fall in this, more just <laughs> rise of someone's career. You're thinking it's going to be, you know, like 1979. This happens. 1980. This happens. But there's a real, a real flair to the way this is directed. I think part of it is the involvement of Andrew Ridgely, um, to the extent that it feels very intimate and personal, even though it was Chris Smith who who directed it. Um, like there's. There's some visual touches, which I think are always important in a documentary like this. There's sort of this stylized element where it feels like it's a scrapbook. Yeah. And they sort of go like, scrapbook 12, scrapbook <laughs> 13. It, fe it feels like we're getting a really intimate look um, behind the curtain, um, which is slightly different from what Chris Smith's done before. So I know him from, he did that documentary about Fire Festival, um, which was a real damning... Um, indictment of everyone involved and he also did Operation Varsity Blues I think a couple years yes, ago yeah. which was about the college admission scandal which was sort of another kind of quite political quite um, scathing look at a certain issue so to see it and he also did um, did he was he involved in Tiger King as well which I, I think, think was another that, yeah. which was another one that was kind of you know pointing fingers and this is anything but that yeah um is a real change of pace for him, uh, but equally as good as his other work. Well, yeah, he seems he seems to go back and forth between like the heavy hitting political dramas and this very intimate one on one. Because he did senior as well about um, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s father. Um, Matt, do you do you feel like you have to be a member of the fandom to to or whammed them to get this? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I, I was 
I would definitely not have watched this had I not been uh, reviewing it for the show. And I'm really glad that I did uh, because I just knew nothing about Wham other than that song which gets played at Christmas all the time. So I was just coming at this knowing absolutely nothing such that it was actually a bit of a twist to me when they said, and then Yogg, because they refer to George Michael as Yogg throughout the whole film until until he sort of blows up. And then Yogg became George Michael. I was like, what? <laughs> wow. Shocking to, to me, probably not to anyone else. But yeah, a great story, really beautifully told about the friendship between these two guys and how they manage the fact that there's a huge sort of talent gap between them where one is just becoming this incredible pop star and one of them just kind of wants to have, have a laugh and be in a band with his friend. But they managed to sort of keep true to their friendship and resist the kind of calls to get engaged in kind of petty power struggles. And yeah, it's just a beautiful story. I did find myself welling up at points. And yeah, ashamed by my ignorance. And it really did inspire me to want to know more about the story behind the story, if that makes sense. Did um, obviously it's it's called Wham, um, but was was anyone disappointed that it doesn't go into it did, the film ends in 1986 with the farewell tour or the farewell concert? Does it was anyone disappointed it doesn't go into post Wham George Michael? It's it's not what it was about at all, which is great because I get to elegantly sidestep some of the darker elements of George Michael's life. But it is about it's a story that people don't realise, like everyone forgets. Wham was only around for four years. They're such a huge band. You'd assume they're around for decades. And I loved it as well, because even if you're not a fan of their music, it's a really nice look into how the music industry has changed. And they were truly one of those last kind of grassroots blew up and got really um, popular just with a, the right top of the pops um, appearance can make or break your career. And it was just, these are mates from bushy like outside of London and this was never supposed to happen to their life and it, it is about that microcosm of the music industry at the time and all their relationships at the time there's plenty of other stuff you can watch about George Michael and what he went on to do so I really like that they concentrated on those four years yeah I think that's a really smart decision because you see a lot of these films where it's the discography of a band that's so sprawling that it kind of feels a bit scattergun and you're racing to cover Every uh, possible aspect. Elton John. Like, <laughs> Elton John. <laughs> oh yeah, but, and the other one was was the Elvis film from last year, which <laughs> covered such a breadth of his career um, that you kind of feel like you're being racing along, hitting all the the best of. And he aspects. gets to he gets to retain his godlike status because at the end you just have all that the, the written on the screen what went on to happen yeah. to him and he's just this deity yeah. not even a real person yeah. anymore because it makes it more of an, a coherent story that has an end because the there's a real tension throughout the film which is I mean I come from so we've talked about you've got one person who knows Wham intimately <laughs> one person who didn't know that George Michael was Wham <laughs> and then I'm, I'm I would have thought this was the most common I'm the guy that knew Wham as George Michael and that other one yes <laughs> I'm with you there yeah, yeah. Um, so to see the film being centred around on Andrew Ridgely coming from mm. the guy who sort of took George Michael in under his wing as sort of this kind of awkward kind of teen and sort of let's start a band, George, what can you do? To sort of seeing his friend come and surpass him in every way, to sort of end the film with, you know, let it, letting his friend go, mm. and then with Andrew sort of disappearing back off into the, you know... Yeah. He, he, he's, I don't think he even attempted a solo career, I think he just 
He, George gave him half the writing credits on Careless Whisper because he knew he'd always have money and would never have to work again. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, for, for me, it was... I, I, I never appreciated how young they were. They were straight out of... I think there was, like, they started doing, like, major... Like, Top of the Pops, they might have even still been in school. Um, they were 18 to, like, 22... Um, were like the Wham years, and I, I think I thought it was interesting to see early George Michael or Yogg, uh, and his his appeal was very much like the spotty teenage country boy <laughs> almost for like this rural kind of thing. And then yeah, the- Andrew was the big star there. Yeah, George was in the background, so everyone was. So again, you didn't even realize that he wrote everything. He's a master songwriter, arranges everything. If um, there was a criticism of it, I felt like it was called Wham, but the female members of Wham just got complete short shrift and didn't even really get mentioned at all. They're called Pepsi and Shirley. <laughs> well, there was three in the end credits, according, <laughs> according to the credits. They, they the switched Pepsi in. <laughs> but yeah, as, as someone who knows nothing, I felt it would have been a bit fairer to focus on the other members of Wham as well, even though, you know, maybe they weren't as important to the rise. Um, did it did it feel honest? Because kind of from watching this documentary, I would not, you'd come a, I would come away with the sense that George Michael was celibate for the first half of his life, which I have a suspicion probably isn't true. Did it was it a bit too scared to go into the the nitty gritty or? Uh, oh yeah, there is there is a sense of it being a little bit sanitized, but I think because of everything that George Michael's gone through later in his career, it was quite nice. I think to see this sort of as a, as a counterpoint that doesn't necessarily need to delve into some of those other issues that have become tabloid. Yeah, Andrew standard. and Shirley are famously um, very protective of him, never sold any of his secrets. They were his best friends right until the end, so you were never going to get any dirt out of them. It, feel, it feels honest in as much as it feels honestly Andrew's perspective. <laughs> that's not necessarily an objective truth, but I think that's, you know, that's what a film like this is for. Um is to have, you know, a particular perspective rather than being, a, you know, a Wikipedia article. Yeah. I think it part, part of me still wants that CD documentary that goes into everything else. But it's a very feel-good story, um, mostly about uh, enduring friendship. Uh, Wham! is a certificate 12A, and it's also streaming on Netflix. Um, sadly, that's all the time we have for this show. Um, do join us on Saturday, 22nd of July, uh, where the Barbie Oppenheimer showdown will finally be settled within the walls of this very studio, and we'll find out what Tom Cruise jumps off of in the next Mission Impossible, Dark Reckoning Part 1. It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, till then, it's goodbye from the team. Goodbye. Ask goodbye from me. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio.